Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. The question that I wanted to lay out is of all the crises that we are facing right now in the United States. Trump, of course, is asserting that brown people coming from Mexico with drugs and gang tattoos, at least in his mind, right, in his delusional, paranoid mind, that that's our biggest crisis, right? That's worth a national emergency. Well, if you're going to have a national emergency, what are the real crises? And I think that this is an important question, because if Trump gets away with his emergency declaration, and, you know, he kind of laid this out, as did Alec Baldwin, and Congress says, uh, no, it's not really an emergency, sorry. And then he vetoes that congressional resolution, which undoes his declaration of emergency. And then Congress fails to overturn his veto. That means that he gets his emergency. And then he can move a few billion dollars around and he can you know, build some more of his wall or whatever he wants to do. But the question is, what are the real crises that we're facing? I mean, if Trump is going to blow up the Constitution, if he's going to violate Article 1, Section 9, if he's going to say, no, I am like King George III, I am, I am the one who decides how money gets spent, and uh, I'm the one who do, you know, takes tax money and spends it however I want. If he does that successfully, and you know, McConnell and the other Republicans kind of go along with him, and yeah, okay, all right, no problem, and a Democratic president comes in behind him and says, you know, this is all well and good, but we actually have some real emergencies here. I mean, the IPCC says that uh, we now have, what, 11 years, 10 years to basically go to zero carbon, or we're going to see the destruction of much of what we call civilization and possibly even the destruction of the human race. We have, you know, schools that are failing in large part because of the racist history of funding schools with property taxes. We have more than a half a million American children suffering from lead poisoning. There's an interesting piece in the New York Times, actually, um, back a week or so ago, that listed some of the things that could be done with the $5 billion that Donald Trump wants for his wall. And I'll just go through this list as possibilities, but what I'd like to hear from you is what do you think are the real emergencies that we're facing? I mean, if we're going to declare an emergency, or if a year and a half from now, two years from now, a Democratic president comes along and has a Democratic Congress, and I think that that's entirely possible, by the way, which of these crises would you like to see us, you know, would you like to see a Democratic president basically lay his presidency or her presidency on the line for to do something about it? And how do we fight back? when we are being overwhelmed by the GOP power structure and when the majority of Americans are one paycheck away from you know, having a crisis themselves. 
So some of the things we could do with the with the five billion dollars that Trump is going to uh, take from someplace. We, I mean, we, we don't know yet, probably out of the military budget. Um, there was some discussion earlier that he was going to take, you know, emergency funds for California and Puerto Rico and not Texas. <laughs> no, 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 no. Texas is a red state. But we just don't know yet. Right. And we'll find that out as the week goes on. But for example, more than a half a million American children suffer from lead poisoning every year. This is an epidemic of lost potential. Lead poisoning measurably reduces IQ and increases the propensity for violence. To solve that problem nationwide, to literally have you know contractors, whether they're government agencies or, or people that we hire using government money, to have contractors go through and get all the lead paint out of American homes and get the lead water lines out, 125 million bucks. Save the lives of a half a million children. Trump doesn't consider that important at all, so that ain't happening. For $438 million, we could put over a million long-acting reversible contraceptives. They're called LARCs, IUDs, implants, things like that, for at-risk young women. And that's based on the cost of $438 per person. That's $438 million bucks. Uh, we could provide comprehensive drug treatment for 40,000 mothers for 18 months. We've got uh, roughly, the best, the best guess is right now that with children under two years old, there's about 40,000 mothers who are actually addicted to drugs right now. And at the cost of $28,000 each for 18 months for drug treatment, we could spend a billion dollars and solve that problem. We could, we could save 40,000 children's lives. We could... Uh, we could, for $650 million, we could send uh, visiting home nurses to 100,000 pregnant moms and their newborn children, you know, shortly after they give birth, and help them out. For $311 million, this, again, this is chump change compared to the $5 billion that Trump wants, we could give methadone treatment to 47,000 narcotics addicts in the United States. For $4.5 billion, we could provide Medicaid to 3.78 million children. We could give them health care. Almost 4 million children. For $73 million, we could give VA health care to 7,000 returning troops. For $250 million, we could radically reduce gang violence in the United States. For $11 million, we could buy back 118,000 guns. For $200 million, we could provide permanent housing for 200,000 homeless people. For $720 million, we could provide an employment program for adults in public housing. 90,000 people in public housing who, in many cases, are functionally illiterate. $720 million, we could give them, you know, an education. For $258 million, we could provide literacy programs for 5 million at-risk children. That's $20 per child per year, literacy coaching. And there's even a program to do it. It's called Reaching Out and Read. For $650 million, we could provide tech ed, a technical education, and internships for uh, 50,000 low-income young people. Give them a start. You know, launch them into careers in their lives. For $234 million, see, none of these are even $1 billion. And Trump is saying, oh, I'm going to get $8 billion. For $234 million, job training and life skill coaching for 36,000 prisoners. So when they you know, are integrated back into their societies, we don't have high recidivism rates. This is something that they, you know, every European country does this. We don't. We could enroll struggling 10th grade boys. This is a particular at-risk group. For $322 million for 11% of all our 10th grade boys which is you know, about the percentage who are, in all probability, going to get out of high school or maybe not even graduate from high school and end up you know, with a life that just doesn't work because they really didn't have that education that they needed. For $100 million, we could fund research into crime, drug use, and high school graduation rates and poverty. The Treasury Department estimates that for every dollar that they spend funding the Internal Revenue Service, they get back $6 in taxes. And the Republicans, ever since Reagan, have been defunding the IRS year after year after year. It's down to the point now where it's very rare that the IRS even audits billionaires anymore. They mostly just audit average working people because, you know, it's easier and faster and they can keep their audit numbers up. $250 million we could fund the IRS. 
for $481 million, we could give a 6% raise to 200,000 teachers. That would be all the teachers in Florida, Louisiana, and Texas, for example. 6% raise. We could provide financial coaching to 5.9 million struggling Americans for a little over a billion dollars. We could train 500,000, 542,000, quote, working poor Americans for only $43 million. We could buy bed nets to protect 20 million families from malaria. Now, that would be mostly in other countries, but it would save 20,000 lives. I mean, you know, the, the list goes on. We could provide uh, vitamin A supplementation for 100 million children and prevent blindness all over the world for $270 million. We could purify water for 25 million people for $33 million. I mean, where should our priorities be if we're going to have an emergency? And if Trump is successful in establishing this precedent, what should a Democratic president do if they're going to declare an emergency? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And we know that there's not a real crisis on our southern border. In fact, more people in the last decade have left this country than come in through the border. But what are the real crises? Steve in Park Ridge, Illinois. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Always good to talk to you. Climate change is the elephant not in the room, but... <laughs> In yeah. the solar system as it regards planet Earth. The last time we spoke, I was on my way to a rally, and I'm on my way to a rally today. I'm in Chicago, and there's a national protest against Trump and the national emergencies all over the country. I think there's 250 cities yes. that are participating, including Chicago, Federal Plaza. Shout out to them. And At what time? Uh, well, it's at noon. Okay. It's now 11.30. But it's so fascinating. The real emergency short term is sitting in the White House. And anybody that doesn't understand what he potentially could do, I mean, he's already done two years of damage. But we're on the cusp of becoming a fascist state. I don't want to, you know, over-dramatize, but he's an authoritative wannabe. And the GOP are like the Nazi party for Hitler in terms of support. They're not counterbalancing his motives, et cetera, but rather they're either supporting or they're complicit by their silence. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely get it. With regard to climate change, we don't even need to spend money. We need to stop spending money. We are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry to the tune in the United States of about $300 billion a year. And you know, worldwide, it's several trillion dollars a year. And if we simply stopped giving them all that money, as a starting point. And then secondly, put into place a tax and, and, and rebate program where say there's you know, a 10, 20, $30 uh, a ton tax on carbon and then 100% of that money gets rebated to every American. Every American gets some of that money back. You use the IRS to do this. I mean, this is not my unique idea. This has been around for quite some time. And that would not require any spending at all. I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. We just need to stop shoveling money at fossil fuel billionaires. The other thing that's crazy that list that you read from the New York Times article, yeah, I mean, it, it just puts a pit in your stomach of all of the problems that this country faces that could be solved if there was the will. We certainly have the smarts, so we have the way, but there are forces of obstruction, whatever, that stand in the way of getting things accomplished that really matter. Yeah. And it's just uh, it's a crying shame. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Okay. Thanks a lot, Steve. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to WCPT. Ed in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Ed, what's up? Hi, Tom. Just wanted to share that uh, this whole emergency thing is really Congress's fault for giving away the farm with the law that lets the executive have their power. The fault in the law is that they allow in the law that you have to have a veto-proof margin in Congress to say, no, 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 don't do that. Right. Once this is all over, that law needs to be tweaked. And sadly, the Supreme Court is going to easily uphold Trump's actions because right now, with current law, what he's doing, as long as Congress doesn't override it, it's in compliance with the law. The Constitution is being violated by Congress not by the president. And so the only person who can save us right now is Mitch McConnell. Yikes. Then we're screwed. <laughs> yeah, well, but the question really is, 
how much does he love the institution that he served, whether we agree with his policies or not? Yeah. How much does he love the institutions and the traditions? I think if Mitch McConnell had any respect on. for the institution of the Senate or for the or, or for the Constitution, for that matter, he wouldn't have blocked Obama. In the last two years of Obama's presidency, he got two federal judges. Last Thursday, Mitch McConnell yeah, pushed 44 yeah. federal judges through. I mean, you know, he uh, Merrick Garland, you know, was, you know, I, it, it wouldn't even hold hearings. Mitch McConnell well, is. We can hope. Mitch McConnell is is a, you know, the, the words that come to mind are not things that would be appropriate to say on the air, but his clear commitment is not to the Constitution and is not to the United States of America. Mitch McConnell and much of the power structure of the Republican Party, their clear commitment, their number one commitment is to money, money and power. And right now in the United States, the wealthiest industry is the fossil fuel industry. That's where that money is going. That's where that money is coming from. That's who they're carrying water for. It's why the one thing that the entire Republican Party is united on is not Medicare. It's not it's not any of the things that you would think, you know, have policy consequences. It's denying climate change. I mean, because their money is coming from fossil fuel billionaires. So, yeah, we'll see what the court does. Actually, I think the question is going to be, is John Roberts more committed to the Constitution than he is to the Republican Party? Because he has certainly I mean, look at gutting the, the Voting Rights Act, for example, that was such a naked power play on behalf of the Republicans by John Roberts, you know, saying, oh, well, there's no, no, there's no more discrimination in the United States. No political party is going to, going to mess with the, uh, you know, our electoral system. So just for their own benefit, that's not, we don't need that anymore. You know, clear lie. And, you know, is that John Roberts going to be the John Roberts who shows up? I have a horrible feeling that it will be. Stephen in Makawaho, Hawaii. I'm sure I'm mangling that, Stephen. My apologies. Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. How do you say your town? Makawa, but actually I live in Kula. I get my mail in Makawa. But anyways, all those things you mentioned, I'm for them. we got to do them all. But if unless we combat climate change... Life is not going to be worth living or we're not going to be here. So the next Democratic president needs to outlaw animal agriculture because animal agriculture causes more climate change than all forms of transportation. And it's the most important thing we need to do also for our health and for the animals. So that's my priority. Instead of absolutely outlawing animal agriculture, you know, I get what you're saying. I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Savory and his whole thing about hooved animals and fields and things that there are certain types of animal agriculture that actually store carbon. Basically, it's herding, herding and shepherding people. But I'm totally with you on outlawing factory farms and these, you know, 10,000 hog operations and things like that. And spending money to, to educate people about plant-based alternatives to meat. And finally, I'd say, Stephen, one of the best ways to change behavior is not so much to outlaw things, but to tax them. The production of meat, the selling of meat, the serving of meat, by meat, I mean generically, pretty much everything, probably even fish, because now we're to the point where we're farming fish and, and it's disrupting our oceans and things. So let's say flesh foods. If there was a tax on those things, a tax at the point of manufacture, a tax at the point of processing, a tax at the point of sale, that would encourage people to eat a more plant-based diet. What do you think? Yeah, I think those are all good things. It just in terms of if we're going to have to declare a national emergency, then I would say, yeah, we have to go for the outline. As far as uh, Alan Savory, his theories have all been proven wrong. If you read Dr. Openlander's book, Alan Savory's people on his board are all people involved in animal agriculture in the biggest way. Uh, and yeah, I, I knew that his claims were overblown. You know, he was saying this will solve everything. I thought that there was actually some small benefit that could be derived from letting the buffalo roam across the Midwest again, you know, that kind of thing. But apparently that's wrong, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I hope someday you could get uh, Openlander in or the people who put it out the movie Cowspiracy. Yeah, savory stuff is just wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah, but it's it's funny how uh, how that took the world by storm there for you know six months or so back. What three, four years ago was it? Yeah, when he had his, when TED, he had talk. his TED talk. But that's not the thing. So yeah, I'm with you, Stephen. I'm absolutely with you. And I guess one of the good news things, one of the things that I heard at this conference in London, they were talking about you know what are the hottest trends right now on YouTube and things like that. One of the hottest trends right now is how do I become a vegan? Absolutely. And you were in England. England is 
incredibly one of the most vegan places it's turned out to be in all of the world. Yeah, it's absolutely and, true. My friend Nigel was, uh, or maybe it was Sue, was telling me, I think the town is Bristol, but I could be wrong. But there's some town in the UK that's like vegan central. There's like, you know, a dozen vegan restaurants. I was like, that's just like Portland. You know, we've got, we've got a whole bunch of vegan restaurants here. Stephen, thank you for the call. Spot on. That's a great one. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up, as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Tom Harvard here with you. Let's do a geeky science alert here. Da, 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 da. Geeky science. Okay, here we go. Okay. One of the things that they found, first of all, they're discovering all this incredible stuff that has to do with the bacteria in your gut. You know, the acidophilus is the one that's most famous, Ruteri, another one. And they're discovering that if the gut bacteria is out of balance, it can cause everything from depression to obesity. And when it's in balance, it can cause, you know, everything from feeling good to being healthy and all this kind of stuff. One of the things that they that they just discovered, this is this is a, a remarkable study published over at sciencedaily.com and they looked into the relationship between the health of your gut what's called the microbiota the gut bacteria and cardiorespiratory fitness in other words how often you get out of breath how often and I don't mean get out of breath in a bad way I mean from exercise right how often do you exercise uh, you know do you walk a mile or two a day and what they found is that the more people exercised in ways that increased the volume of blood being pumped by their heart and the amount of breathing that they were doing, oxygenating their blood, the healthier both the bacteria were and the, the, the larger number of bacteria and the more of the good bacteria and less of the bad bacteria. And, uh, you know, this is just absolutely fascinating stuff. I mean, this whole microbiome is an area that is so fascinating. So, anyhow, our geeky science for the day. Kelly, watching Free Speech TV in Lake Havasu City, Arizona. You have convinced me to participate, and I became a precinct committee person. I'm now the county chair for Mojave County, which is geographically the fifth largest county in the United States. Wow, and congratulations, we, Kelly. I applaud you. <laughs> Lake Havasu used to have six or seven precincts, Democratic precincts. We have two now. We have two because people stop participating. And when I say stop participating, they aren't becoming PCs. And if they aren't becoming PCs, we don't fill all of our PC slots, which means we don't have all of our delegates, which means we don't have a voice. PC is precinct committee person, right? Yes, sir. So let me understand this. This is something I didn't realize, Kelly. So what you're saying is that it's not that an area that would encompass eight precincts has essentially merged into just two because you've only got two governing bodies. It's that three quarters of your area literally has no democratic representation. They're just not showing up. Well, people are showing up to the meetings, but they're not raising their hand to become a PC. And without becoming a PC, we don't get delegates. So the, the precincts get condensed into larger areas. So now instead of, you know, walking two blocks to talk to your neighbors while you're a PC in that small area, now you're walking 20 blocks. Ah, okay. So it's not like there's areas that are a desert, essentially a political desert. It's rather that the, the areas are getting larger and larger, which makes them more and more unwieldy. Well, because people aren't participating. Right. You know, I love the fact that we've done nothing but boost membership in this county. We moved the needle 10 points to the left in this last election, which is unheard of. That's great. Um, it, 
But we still have a ton of work which requires people to participate. This is why I keep telling our people, and I will tell our people that, you know, from now until the next election and the next cycle after that, we have to participate. And I, and I will tell you, Tom, that we just had our state committee uh, meeting to reelect um, our state officials. Mm-hmm. And, and the state party here in Arizona is solidly, and I mean solidly, progressive. We are changing things in this state. Oh, yeah. And that's happening all over the country, Kelly. Yes, sir. I mean, it really and truly is. When uh, The latest poll, this was just last week. Uh, I, I think it was Gallup. It might have been another polling organization, but it's one of the big ones. 81% of Democrats want Medicare for all. I know. I mean, it's like, and, 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 and when Bernie first proposed that, uh, you know, back when he was on my show every Friday and Bernie first proposed Medicare for all in the United States Senate, he literally could not get one Democrat to co-sponsor it. Not one. This was like, you know, four or five years ago. And now we're keep moving forward. Yeah, there you go. But Kelly, thanks a lot for the call and good on you for everything you're doing there in Arizona. I really appreciate it. And thanks again for watching Free Speech TV. Mina in St. Paul, Nebraska, watching Free Speech TV. Hey, Mina, what's up? My national emergency is suicide, veteran suicide. Oh, yeah. Uh, since Trump has been president, 16,632 veterans have committed suicide. And they're starting now to commit suicide in the parking lots of the VA as a way of making a statement about how terrible things are. And not specifically terrible at the VA, but just, you know, hey, I want to do it visibly. I want to see this. I want this this suicide to be associated with my service. And this is not a new problem. It's been 10 years since Dave and I wrote an article for our local newspaper about veteran suicides. Yeah. Well, and there was a big surge of them after the Vietnam War, too. I mean, some people come back. War, you know, war is legalized, organized mass killing. And there's something in most of us, those of us who are not sociopaths, that just even the very idea of killing another person is revolting. I mean, it's why murder is the is typically the crime that's committed in on shows on TV, on cop shows, because it's such an unthinkable thing that there's kind of a weird fascination with it, I suppose, or at least with finding the murderer, finding that person. But when you put somebody in a situation where all of their whole entire life they've been taught don't hurt, don't kill, and then they're taught to kill, and then they go out and they do kill, or they participate in killing, or they watch killing, Many people come back and have a really, really hard time dealing with that. My dad, just before he died, talked with one of my kids about how when he was on patrol in Japan uh, after World War II, uh, he shot at a guy and he never knew if he hit him, he never knew if he killed him. But for the rest of his life, he was haunted by that. I mean, to the point that he was like doing a deathbed confession. It's just, you know, this is serious, serious stuff. And we are creating more by getting into more in, more involved. Yes. Are, are we going into Venezuela? God forbid. Mina, thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear from you. Dave in Armstrong Creek, Wisconsin. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, did you, have you ever heard of a guy named Dar Jamal? Oh, Dar sat right next to me just two oh. weeks ago to oh, talk really? about his new book, uh, The End of Ice. Yes, uh, I was gonna, that's what I wanted to bring up. And the issue of climate change and his uh, talking about the, uh, you know, the disappearing of the glaciers and how it affects the water supplies, irrigation. Yep. And climate change itself, to me, is the crisis. Of, it affects almost everything. Yeah, if we're going to declare a national emergency, that's the one to do. And, and by yeah. the way, the, the, my interview with Dar is uh, on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't catch it. That if, I, I don't catch your show every day, so I probably missed it. But uh, um, one of the things that I did want to bring up, though, is that I think he talked about is We've gotten so far along, there's there's a lot of this stuff is already baked into the cake, and I think we're going to really have to seriously talk about mitigating some of the really dire circumstances, you know, and of course we have to do everything we can to slow things down, but this is going to take a major radical effort worldwide, and, you know, I really don't see it happening right now, and it's kind of, it's it's distressing, and, you know, but like you say, despair is not an option. Yeah. 
Yeah. Amen. No, we've got to work on this. And, and I think the, the good news is that, um, you know, all over the world, people are waking up and all over the United States, people are waking up. And and I don't know how much longer the Republicans will be able to continue taking money from the fossil fuel industry and lying to our faces. I mean, they did that with the tobacco industry for years and years. In 2000, Mike Pence wrote an op-ed about how tobacco doesn't cause cancer, um, you know, because he was taking money from the tobacco industry. Um, eventually, that became politically unacceptable. And I I have a feeling that it, within the next two years, it, you're going to find a very similar dynamic uh, to what happened between 1998 and 2001 with regard to tobacco, which was in large part as a result of lawsuits. But, but I think in this case, it's going to be more and more natural disasters. And, Do we and, have that much time? Well, you know, the IPCC says we've got another 10 or, 10 or 11 years. Um, there are others who suggest, you know, we've passed the point of no return. Uh, we uh, clearly have passed the point of no return with regard to the melting of the glaciers, you know, sea level rise and, and ice in the Arctic. Whether those are going to be civilization ending events or even humanity ending events, or whether they're simply going to be highly disruptive is something that is still being de debated. So hope dies last. Unfortunately, you know, the the, the last people to really feel the effects are going to be the truly big ultra-rich, which have had a lot to do with causing the problem. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and they know it. And like I said earlier, I think it's like a smash-and-grab operation. They're getting everything they can right now, um, you know, from the tax breaks to everything else. And then, hey, let the ship go down. I've got my trillion dollars. Dave, thanks for the call. Renee in St. Louis. Hey, Renee, what's on your mind today? If we're going to spend money and we're going to spend $5 billion dollars, can we start with paying black people their reparations? For 400 years worth of free labor? Yes. And continuing on, because it doesn't look like they plan on stopping. Clearly, this man has never had to run a household of any sort, because you take care of your light, your gas, your phone, your bills, and your household bills first. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Then, if I have extra, then if I have extra money going over, I can't even afford to go to the movies. That's so, just a $10 ticket for one person. Yeah, so, Renee, how, how would reparations work in your mind? What, how do you do it? Where, where do you begin? One of the things that I would do is I would give all black people health care. Let's start there. And let's give everybody health care. I mean, that... that exactly. Yeah. Let's give everybody health care. There are just so many other things that can be done with this money. They yeah. knew that the man was corrupt before they put him in. There is no, and everybody was all excited about his book that he wrote and, and putting himself on television with that foolish uh, program that he had. Mm. He's a foolish man. Okay. Yeah. And do not trust Mike Pence. Do not trust him. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I'm totally with you. Renee, thank you very so much for I'll the call. I'll let you go and talk to everybody else. There you go. Reparations. That's a great place to start. What are the crises? What are the real crises that you see that would be worthy of a presidential proclamation? And how do we take back power from the great money that's running the GOP? to the Tom Hartman program. I mean, the Supreme Court really screwed this one up. And now we've got even our elections are being defined by who's got the most money, which billionaire is behind whom. My friends at XChair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your XChair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter-smooth, whisper-quiet ball bearings and are built to last. As if the XChair isn't comfortable enough, now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of XChair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com. Hey, it's Tom Harbin. We're reading from A Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right in today's Tom Harbin University Book Club. This is from Chapter 11, page 271. 
The official opening of the 112th Congress took place on January 5th, 2011, when Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, handed off an oversized ceremonial gavel to her successor, John Boehner. But a new era of ultra-conservative billionaire influence had already begun. Before the public swearing-in ceremony got underway, David Koch, whose donor network had spent at least $130.7 million on winning a Republican majority, was in the new Speaker-to-be's office chatting amiably with his staff. The People's House was under new management, and critics would suggest new ownership. While Koch was a very public presence on the Capitol, his political adjutant, Tim Phillips, the president of Americans for Prosperity, was deep in the inner sanctum of the congressional committee that mattered most to the bottom line of Koch Industries. Phillips' most important destination that day was the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which under the new Republican majority had now increased its power to block President Obama's environmental agenda in Congress. The committee could bury progress on climate change and harass the EPA for the foreseeable future. In Plutocrats, the rise of the new global super-rich and the fall of everyone else, journalist Krista Freeland describes how those with massive financial resources almost universally use them to secure politics and policies beneficial to their interests, often at the expense of the less well-off. In the United States, a number of studies have shown that in recent years, this tendency has distorted politics in very specific ways. In a study he conducted for the nonpartisan Sunlight Foundation, the political scientist Lee Drutman found that increasingly concentrated wealth in America resulted in more polarization and extremism, especially on the right. Very rich benefactors in the Republican Party were far more opposed to taxes and regulations than the rest of the country. He discovered the more Republicans depend upon 1% of the 1% donors, the more conservative they tend to be. The 112th Congress soon unfolded as a case study of what David Frum, an advisor to the former President George W. Bush, described as the growing and, in his view, destructive influence of the Republican Party's radical rich. The radicalization of the party's donor base, he observed, has propelled the party to advocate policies that were more extreme than anything since Barry Goldwater and his 1964 presidential campaign. It also led Republicans in Congress to try tactics they would never have dared use before, end quote. Hard data supported this. Harvard's Theta Scott poll found that the House took the biggest leap to the far right since political scientists began recording quantitative measurements of legislators' positions. There was no better example than the Koch's newly won influence over the House Energy and Commerce Committee. In the previous Congress, the panel had been chaired by Henry Waxman, a liberal Democrat from California, would quarterback the House's successful passage of the cap-and-trade bill, only to see it die in the Senate. Now the new Republican leadership stocked the committee with oil industry advocates, many of whom owed huge campaign debts to the Kochs. Koch Industries' PAC was the single largest oil and gas industry donor to members of the panel, outspending even ExxonMobil. It had donated to 22 of the committee's 31 Republican members and five of its Democratic members, too. In addition, five out of the six Republican freshmen on the committee had received outside support from Americans for Prosperity. Meanwhile, many of the new committee members had signed an unusual pledge swearing fealty to the Koch's agenda. They promised to vote against any kind of carbon tax unless it was offset by comparable spending cuts, an unlikely scenario. The no climate tax pledge was invented by Americans for Prosperity in 2008, when the Supreme Court cleared the way for the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases as it does other pollutants. The Koch's pledge was modeled on the enormously successful one that the anti-tax crusader Grover Norquist had used to intimidate Republican lawmakers from raising taxes. In this instance, it served not a cause so much as a company. By the start of the legislative session in 2011, fully 156 members of Congress had signed the Koch brothers' No Climate Tax Pledge. Many returning members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee had already taken the pledge, and of the 12 new Republicans on the panel, nine were signatories, including five of the six freshmen. A prime example of the symbiotic relationship between the Kochs and the committee was Morgan Griffith, who had defeated Rick Boucher in the district that represented Saltville, Virginia, and was among the new wave of appointees to the Energy and Commerce Committee who were openly indebted to the Koch brothers for their seats. Americans for Prosperity operatives were guests of honor at a victory rally soon after the election, at which Griffith gushed, quote, I'm just thankful that you all helped me out in so many ways, end quote. The Koch's investment soon paid off. Once in office, Griffith became an outspoken skeptic of mainstream climate science, drawing national ridicule for lecturing scientific experts as they testified before Congress that they needed to consider the possibility that Mesopotamia and the Vikings owed their success to global warming, and the melting ice caps on Mars showed that humans were not its cause on Earth.
Congressman Griffith became a lead player in the House Republicans' war on the EPA, demanding that the agency be reined in. Within a month after he took office, he and other House Republicans gutted the EPA budget by a t- punishing 27%. Dark money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right, Jane May. Mark in San Francisco, listening on AM 910. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Yeah, it's income uh, inequality. That, to me, that's uh, the big one. Uh, you think that's the biggest crisis we're facing? You know, the loss of pensions, reverse mortgages, which we never had before, student debt, uh, people living paycheck to paycheck, the loss of union jobs, tax cuts for the rich. It, it, it's beyond belief how bad it's gotten, Tom. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and this is the, the direct predicted consequence of Reaganism. You know, 40 years now of Reaganism, and nobody reversed it. It, 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 We've had uh, two Democratic presidents since Reagan, and neither one of them reversed Reaganism. And, you know, it's that, if we're going to solve this problem of income inequality, which then echoes out to everything from school failures to drug addiction to divorce to the the destruction of the family to, I mean, just all kinds of things, um, we need to reverse Reaganism. And uh, number one is we need to reverse the three tax cuts, Reagan's tax cut, Bush's tax cut, and Trump's tax cut. Those three tax cuts brought us a $21 trillion debt. And there is so much we could do if we could just reverse Reaganism. Mark, spot on. Thank you for the call, and thanks for listening to AM 910 there in San Francisco. Denny in Pine Top, Arizona. Hey, Denny, what's up? I'm an ex-city of Flint cop. Uh, I have military background, Vietnam era, combat zone, uh, infantry paratrooper, factory work summers at Buick Manufacturing. Thank you for the big number picture of the real emergencies in this country. And there could be and should be a solution, and it starts with jobs at a livable wage. And I believe the Green New Deal could jumpstart that paradigm. I absolutely agree. If there are trillions of dollars that is uninvested uh, at this time, as we're told, Mm. uh, I believe there's a substantial uh, chunk of wealth that could collateralize a loan with enough money to restart a green jobs program. It will be incremental in the beginning, uh, of course. And I think there could be a government-sponsored uh, initiative at a reasonable interest rate, say 7 to 10%, to borrow the amount of money that would be necessary to restart the economy with a green jobs program. And again, these jobs will evolve into livable pay yeah. with unionizing, etc., right. and it's bound to happen. So let's bring back the unions. And, and Denny, your point is a really important one, and let me put a little larger frame around it. We have, in the United States, got a gun crisis, you know, 40,000 shootings last year. That's massive. To a certain extent, some of that, a lot of that maybe even, uh, particularly the suicides, which is about half of all those gun deaths, have to do with economic crises. So you've got that, number one. Number two, you've got uh, economic crisis. Basically, the destruction of the middle class as a consequence of 40 years of Reaganism has has, uh, you know, it, it causes divorces, it causes suicides, it has created a generation that will not do better than their parents for the first time probably in the history of the United States, outside of maybe the generation of, through the Great Depression. And they eventually recovered as well. Um, the, the, the impact, the consequence, the, the terrible, terrible impact of the transfer of literally trillions of dollars, hundreds of billions to trillions of dollars of wealth, not just income, but wealth, actual, you know, the, 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 what people own from middle class Americans, from working class Americans, from people like you, Denny, people like my dad, uh, people like me for that matter. I take a paycheck. I've, I've got a job here. Enormous transfer of wealth from working people to people who, by and large, Robert Reich points out, either inherited their money, which is you know, about half of the, the, the very, very rich people in this country, like the Walton family, or who made their money as a result of you know, being big in a monopoly that should not exist, or who had inside information or committed fraud. Basically, those are the only three ways you get to be a billionaire. And that has had horrible impact in the United States. And it's also created a political atmosphere where, as Kate Pickett and uh, Richard Wilkinson pointed out in their new book, The Inner Level, 
that this is destroying trust. It's increasing ills that I already mentioned. It's increasing teenage pregnancy rates. It's increasing STDs. The fact that we don't have a national health care system puts us all at risk if there was to be another flu pandemic or if we were to be attacked biologically with a biological weapon of some kind. We don't even have a system, a national system to deal with that. So jobs and affordable wages, the topic that you just brought up, Denny, is so much bigger than it sounds. Really what we're talking about is putting America and putting the middle class of America back back together. You know, Reaganism has just ripped us apart. And uh, so spot on. Denny, thanks so much for the call and, and thanks so much for watching us. Dad in Portland, not my dad. <laughs> but your name is Dad, listening on X-Ray FM in Portland, Oregon? Well, actually, I go by Dad on KXRY in Portland, Oregon. Oh, great. Okay, cool. Topsoil. Some figures. Uh-huh. We're losing topsoil worldwide anywhere from one sixteenth to one twentieth of an inch a year. That means about every sixteen to twenty years we lose an inch. Mother Nature, by herself, depending on the latitude and local conditions, creates a, a, an inch of topsoil every two hundred to three hundred years with the maximum help of humans by composting and fertilization, best case 50 to 70 years to create an inch of topsoil. Now, my best subject in school was not math, but I can take the best case for loss is 20 years an inch, and the best case for gain is 50 years an inch, and the worst case is vastly worse on both sides. And the fact that we cannot feed the population we have right now, if we don't have topsoil, my descendants are going to starve. And that's a crisis that really, really, really needs attention. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, I, I read about this in the last hours of ancient sunlight. At the time that uh, European colonists first started moving across the Midwest, there were large chunks of the Midwest, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Missouri, Kentucky, where the average topsoil depth was seven to 10 feet. And it's now less than one foot. And that topsoil sequestered an enormous amount of carbon. The amazing story that we saw last week, I, I did it as a, as a geeky science alert, uh, maybe it was two weeks ago, but in the last couple of weeks, they just came out with this, you know, everybody had been wondering, the climate deniers have been saying, well, there was this little ice age in the 1600s where the whole world cooled down for about 80 years and nobody knows why, but it had to do probably with sunspots or something. And therefore global warming has nothing to do with carbon cycles. Well, it turns out that the reason why we had the little ice age, the reason why the atmosphere, the entire planet cooled down by about a half a degree for about 80 years was because we killed a hundred million Native Americans and many of them, most of them in fact, were engaged in some form of agriculture. And when they died, their fields went fallow. Those fallow fields grew up into bushes and trees and things which were sequestering carbon, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and building soil again and and by sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere because trees are made out of carbon dioxide right it's, it's carbon hydrogen and oxygen makes cellulose that's why it's called carbohydrates um, that that it sucked enough co2 out of the atmosphere that it actually reduced the, the greenhouse effect of CO2 to the point that it cooled the planet down. Our genocide of Native Americans cooled down the planet. And so if we want to reverse climate change, the, the topic that you're talking about, Dad, is a big piece of that. And that is, let's restore our topsoil. And you put the fact that with, within the next generation, you're going to have 10 billion people on the face of the earth. Yeah. We're having trouble feeding them now. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get there. I, 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 I just don't. I think we've already uh, exceeded the carrying capacity of the planet. Without fossil fuels, I think the carrying capacity of this planet is probably in the neighborhood of a billion people. Uh, with fossil fuels, you know, it's probably around six or seven billion. And we've got to phase out the fossil fuels. But that's a whole other conversation. But topsoil, big one. Thank you, Dad. I've been telling you how much I love Harry's products for years. I won't shave with anything else. Their close shave and smooth, comfortable glide is amazing. And Harry's delivers right to your door at a price your wallet will love, too. Harry's doesn't do gimmicks, you know? No vibrating heads, flex balls, or handles that look like spaceships. Who needs that stuff? Harry's gives you a simple, clean design with quality, durable blades, all at a fair price. 
Replacement cartridges are just $2 each, half the price of Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. And Harry's Blades come with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love your shave or get a full refund. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners of the Tom Hartman program. New customers get $5 off a trial set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get a razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover, all for just 3 bucks. Plus free shipping when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Go to harrys.com today and use the code TOM to claim your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. That's harrys.com, code TOM. Russell in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Hey. My idea is, of course, climate change. We, you know, the bug population is being reduced, the animal population is being reduced, even the microbiome in our stomach. There are actually done studies where it's being reduced. Yep. But that having been said, I think there's something more insidious going on here. I believe that, you know, the fossil fuel billionaires and Trump and maybe, you know, his cohorts, they know that this is happening. They know this is coming. And their whole idea is we have to deny it to not set anybody, you know, the populace in general. Right. And then we have to clamp. We need to, you know, gain control in any way we can. And then something like this emergency declaration, he's getting money and he has the ability to get money to do a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily have to mean building a wall. It could be we need to clamp down on the people in the country. Deregulate more things, make the air more poisonous, make the water more poisonous, which makes industry more profitable. A lot well, of things like that. Be, they're going to be fine. You know, they'll have, you know, their gated communities, probably gated counties. So it's, it's like a smashing grab, Russell. Fine. What's going on? It's like yeah. a smashing grab. They know that it's all going down. They're breaking the windows and grabbing everything they can, and they don't care about the wreckage they leave behind because, hey, I got mine. Right? Exactly. And we have to understand that when this happens, and I've been following, you know, climate change for a long time, doing a lot of research. Mm. It's a lot worse than most people think. They try to keep the whole idea as, well, you know, it's, it's a problem, but, you know, there's something we can do about it. Well, it's a real big problem, and yeah. we're not sure that there's something we can do about it. We're, we're hoping there is. Yeah. And if we have those people in control of how this shakes out, it's yeah. going to be, you know, the best is going to happen to them. It's not going to be a good thing for the rest of the people. You yeah, know, it's just not I, I'm, be. I'm with you. You know, Guy McPherson is probably the most articulate spokesman for the absolute doomsday scenario. And I can't just dismiss him or the many people who are along with him. For great information on this, go to arctic-news.blogspot.com. But, yeah, right. spot on, spot on. Russell, thank you for the call. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John. Yeah, I wanted to say that I think the the truth of our system has been so twisted by neoliberalism that we can no longer really actually answer any of the questions facing us, the existential threats, because it just doesn't get through. You talk about it. Your listeners talk very eloquently about it. People write books about it. But where is it all leading to unless we fix that? I don't really see that our government is really going to, which is very necessary. Government is necessary. We need to govern ourselves both politically and culturally. We need, need it. This is what human beings do. And we need to have a good one. I'm not cynical. I think I think there's a lot of things going on in politics that are very hopeful, but this is a crisis that's going on right now, right before our eyes, and yes. we need to really put our heads together and do something about it. I agree. I absolutely agree, John. And quite a bit of the crisis is actually in the White House right now and in the GOP. John, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Today in the Tom Hartman Book Club, we're featuring The Inner Level by Richards Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. It's a new book. The subtitle is How More Equal Societies Reduce Stress, Restore Sanity, and Improve Everyone's Well-Being. This is in Chapter 6, The Misconception of Meritocracy, page 161. Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London who became foreign secretary in Theresa May's conservative government in 2016, was educated at Eton and Oxford. Given giving the Margaret Thatcher lecture to a think tank in 2013, he articulated the view that economic equality will never be possible because some people are simply too stupid to catch up with the rest of society. 
Quote, whatever you may think of the value of IQ tests, it is surely relevant to a conversation about equality that as many as 16% of our species have an IQ below 85, he said. Comparing society to a box of cornflakes, he praised inequality for creating the conditions under which the brightest triumph. Quote, the harder you shake the pack, the easier it will be for some cornflakes to get to the top, end quote. Inequality, quote, is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses that is, like greed, a valuable spur to economic activity. Whether or not Johnson is quite as clever a cornflake as he presumably likes to think, he certainly is not in command of the facts. Nobel Prize winning economists, as well as the OECD and IMF, have shown how inequality, far from spurring on economic growth, leads to stagnation and instability. Social mobility is reduced where income inequality is greatest and far from inspiring innovation. It turns out that there are actually slightly more patents granted per head uh, of population in more equal countries. And as we've seen in the previous chapters, there's also the undeniable human cost of our fixation with keeping up with the Joneses. But Boris is far from alone in his misconceptions about the relationships between inequality and ability. The idea that people are naturally endowed with differences in ability, intelligence, or talent, and that those differences then determine how far up the social ladder they reach, is a powerful popular justification for social hierarchy. The presumption is that we live in a meritocracy in which the key to status is ability. We think of society as shaped like a pyramid. The supposition is that most people are near the bottom or only a little above it because the bulk of the population lack the special talents that we imagine people need to get to the top. The belief that differences in ability are the main influence on where people end up on the social ladder is so strong that we tend to judge everyone's personal worth, ability, and intelligence by their position in society. Nor is this confined simply to how we judge others. It also affects how people see themselves. Those at the top often believe that they're there because they are naturally endowed with plenty of the right stuff, just as many of those near the bottom think that their low status reflects a lack of ability. That picture, however, is not supported by the latest scientific evidence. First, research now shows that a very major part of what happens to people and where they end up is the result of totally unpredictable influences and occurrences amounting to pure luck. Second, aside from luck, the most important links that exist between ability and status operate in the opposite direction of that imagined by most people. Rather than different endowments of talents determining position in the hierarchy, it's much nearer the truth to say that position in the hierarchy determines abilities, interests, and talents. But let's address luck first. Whether or not we consider ourselves successful, most of us can probably look back across our own life histories and recognize the roles that luck and chance have played in getting us to where we are. We're perhaps lucky with schools or teachers, with the questions on an important exam, with some nameless person dealing with university applications, or we got on well with an interviewer when applying for a job. Perhaps a chance meeting was important, or perhaps an opportunity for promotion came up unexpectedly. Finding a life partner is just as important for our quality of life as our career or income, but we are far happier to acknowledge that chance and luck played a key role in meeting that person than we are in acknowledging luck's role in our career. No one minds mentioning the chance meeting, the circumstances that put you both at ease with each other, or the shared interest that might easily have gone unrecognized. The role of chance makes people's lives highly unpredictable. Although there are huge social class biases and social mobility, there are, the same, there are at the same time vast numbers of people moving up or down the social ladder in ways that even the most detailed analysis of parenting and ability fail to, fail to predict. Similarly, although there are differences of perhaps 10 years in the average life expectancy of upper and lower social classes, that explains very little of the individual differences in how long people live. Inevitably, some rich people will die young and some people live in poverty to a great age. And as some public health mavericks used to say, even if you exercised, ate healthy, and didn't smoke, your most likely cause of death was still heart disease. In addition to all this, there may be a large element of chance in whatever our experiences, including subjective experiences, trigger the kind of epigenetic changes affecting subsequent develop development that we discussed in the last chapter. Just as the development of weather systems is sometimes said to be so chaotic it can be changed by the flapping of a butterfly's wings, so what amounts to chance events at the social or the cellular level are now thought to play a very substantial part in our lives. So much so, the scientists have worried that if random chance and luck are such important determinants of whether or not an individual becomes sick, 
gets good exam results or has a good marriage, it becomes difficult to understand causal pathways at all and to do anything about preventing or remedying bad outcomes. The book, The Inner Level by Wilkinson and Pickett. Howard in New York City. Hey, Howard, what's up? Yeah, hi. Danny Savalas, I guess you know him, is a legal commentator. He says that the National Emergency Act, I think it was in 86, doesn't specify or define what a national emergency is. That's correct. So does that mean, so does that mean it goes up to uh, the Supreme Court and John Roberts decides whether to rule a democracy or a unitarian government? Yes. In a nutshell. Yeah, I know. And it's not just John Roberts. It's it's uh, Clarence Thomas and it's Brett Kavanaugh and it's Sam Alito. Who's the other right wing crazy? <laughs> it's it's uh, that's what's going to happen, Howard. And Trump laid it out. He was he was absolutely right. And uh, and of course, uh, on Saturday Night Live, Baldwin did a perfect imitation, but it was spot on. We'll see where it goes. Howard, thanks for the call. Tom in Stanford, Kentucky. You want to try it again, Tom? Yeah. Hi, Tom. Given uh, that over two years the Republicans and the Democrats have vetoed or not voted for this wall, that's right. the question, why Why is he motivated to build a wall? And I, this greedy, selfish man has property or investments in Panama which is a money laundering operation for the drug dealers. Yeah, well, it may, it may well be that. It may be that he's got big donors who are in the construction business, or it may simply be that he's decided to run for re-election in 2020, and he's kicking it off right now with his racist trope, you know, and, and he's trying to activate the white racist base, which is uh, unfortunately substantial. Tom, thank you for the call. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires You've you. Been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow.